0: Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. In this episode, we're discussing SST-32, the cassette-only release by the Minuteman called My First Bells. Almost all the tracks on it, we have been here before, but there's some neat little tidbits on this cassette that we haven't covered before in previous podcasts, so it'll be interesting to get into those tangents for a bit. And we actually have a special guest on this episode as well, Brant. Yeah, Linda Kite joined
1: us. So she was around the Pedro scene, basically from its inception. And uh, she uh, also dated Dee Boone. So we're very grateful that she took the time to talk to us. And it's a great interview, so we hope
0: you all enjoy it. Absolutely. For me, every Minuteman episode... That we do. It's a tribute to D Boone. It's a tribute to the band, but especially to D. This one in particular, though. The the stories that Linda is able to share about you know knowing him personally, I've never heard this stuff before. So it's very cool. Um, And on that note, got a couple of spiel's though before we get going, if that's okay, Brent. Yeah, go. So you were mentioning the other day when we were chatting about how people are on uh, you know on the internet and all that kind of stuff you know pointing out a couple of clarifications for us on some of the things that we go over on the podcast and I actually wanted to just say thanks because I keep learning a lot every episode and that's exactly why we're doing this and the name of the show says it all you know we don't know mojack and we don't know a lot of stuff but we're trying to find some cool stuff and we really appreciate everyone kind of chipping in and saying you know you know what this means is blah or that kind of stuff, correcting us, even. I don't know about you, but I mean, I have learned as much as I have kind of researching the show as the people kind of posting on Facebook and SoundCloud and all that kind of stuff, and it's very cool. Good community.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. We love it. So please keep it coming.
0: Now, in the spirit of D Boone, I thought I'd give a D Boon spiel. For those who have seen, the documentary We Jam Econo, there's a moment in the movie near the end where I think they're on tour with R.E.M. Near the end, D. Boone, kind of, he just unfurls a piece of scrap paper, it looks like. Maybe it's some shit from an old notebook, you never know. And he says these words, and I've always really liked them, and uh, I thought, I wanted to make sure we got this in this episode. So this is a a spiel from D. Boone. Quote, To all you mothers and fathers, create forums in which your children can learn the beauty of the world through art and through the arts so they can pass it on to their children. That's what my parents did for me. End quote. D. Boone. Yeah, that's awesome. Love that. Yeah. Okay, well, I think History Lesson is the interview with Linda. Yes, it is. Let's get into it.
1: History Lesson, part one. Linda, thanks for coming on the podcast. So, did you grow up in Pedro?
2: I did grow up in San Pedro. In fact, I always like to tell the funny story that the housing that uh, I actually didn't move there until I was six years old. But then I did stay there all through elementary school and junior high school, as it were. And um, and when I was six years old, we first moved into the housing complex. And um, it was a fourplex, the unit that we were in. And so we were holding down a corner unit, and the Boons were holding down the other corner unit. And at some point, this young man knocked on my door and wanted to know if I wanted to learn to play chess. He <laughs> was eight, and I was six. I knew that chess was played on a checkerboard, and that was about as much as I knew. And, so, and, and I was a very limited English speaker at that time. So ironically, when, you know, when he asked me about the chess, I was you know, on the one hand trying to navigate english so i was like the red and the black squares right yeah and he very kindly said why yes it is but look you have these other you know instead of those little round discs you have these other kinds of you know things whatever they're called you know and then he started naming all the names well as a limited english speaker that was a great way to learn more english pawn queen rook <laughs> <laughs> It was all gibberish anyways, right? It didn't really matter whether it was English or or just specialized words, right? But um in fact that is how De Boon came and knocked on my came and knocking on my door to teach me how to play chess. I'm not sure exactly why he thought I would be the one to, to teach. Later on he told me that it was because he could tell I was smart. Yeah. Um, not sure how you can tell by looking, but he, he in fact did. Mm-hmm. And uh that's that's how we started what ended up being quite the friendship actually.
1: You so. you stayed friends or did you kind of reconnect later?
2: um yeah i mean after after chess came books because then i was learning to be proficient in english um and we used to you know we kind of started our own little salon probably by the time i was in second grade where you know we'd pick a book we'd each read it and then we'd talk about it we'd discuss it right Mm -hmm. (laughs) he used to like coming over because he liked my mom's cooking and um i think i liked going over there because i could get away from my brother and sister and his mom was super cool. She was way cool. His mom and my mom were best friends. Okay. And the story is, and I tell this to all my friends now, right, that part of the reason my house is so messy is because I miss what my mom and Margie had, Margie Boone. Um, Margie would come over in the morning. She'd hang out with my mom. She would drink coffee and smoke cigarettes and sit at the kitchen table while my mom spit shine the kitchen. And then after my mom was then, you know, lunch would come, and so we would all come home for for lunch. We lived like a block away from the school. We'd all come home, and then from there, they'd feed us our lunch, and then we'd go back to school. And then my mom would go over to Margie's house and drink constant comment tea while uh, Margie spit-shined her kitchen in the afternoon. And they did this every day. And I'm convinced that if I had a cleaning partner like that, my house would definitely be cleaner But it was through those conversations, you know, whenever I'd stay home from school for whatever ailment, I would eavesdrop on their conversations. Um, I, you know, I learned a lot from from both Margie and the kind of conversations she had with my mother. And I um, it's just really fond memories of my childhood Mm -hmm. and also Dennis, because he was so, so unique and he was always a rather large boy. He was bullied a lot when we were little. Okay. Um, and Margie just kind of recognized that, and also sort of recognized that you know he could kind of do um, almost like homeschooling, right? So he he didn't go to school a lot. There was mm-hmm. lots of times he just stayed home and read history books and practiced the guitar. Um, and she was fine with that. She facilitated that. But I do remember hearing the stories where she rationalized to my mother why it was okay for him to you know stay home and, and read history books and how he was learning more than what the school was bothering to teach him anyways. Yeah. Um, she had a pretty cool head on her shoulders that way. And, and the guitar idea was her idea because I guess she used to play guitar when she was younger. Um, and then the story goes that when Mike Watt started coming over, that, that's way later in the story, but when he did start coming over it was his mom that wanted him to learn to play a musical instrument because he was rather uncoordinated. But it was Margie who told him he should be a bass player because Dennis was going to be the guitar player, like, like Margie knew this. You know? right, right. And, then, and then Dennis's little brother, Joe, was the drummer. So okay. the original band was De- Joey, Dennis, and Mike. And then there was a kid down the road um, named Danny Salvador. And they allowed Danny to be in the band because he had good equipment.
0: So uh-huh. the original lineup
2: <laughs> was Danny, Mike, Dennis, and Joe, and um, and and I, you know, I'll even way fast forward. It was I think summer of seventy, not summer, spring of seventy four, maybe seventy five, thereabouts. And I could hear them practicing and practicing and practicing a lot of Creedence songs and. You know, some T-Rex and just whatever standard stuff. And then um, Margie came over and said, do you want to come and hear Dennis and Joey? <laughs> Thinking to myself, yeah, like I haven't heard them all week. Like the whole neighborhood hasn't heard them all week. <laughs> but of course, like a polite young lady, I agreed to grab my little brother and went over there. And I asked her and they said, what do you want to play? And I said, do you know Stairway to Heaven?
1: they did (laughs) they pulled out stairway to heaven for you they
2: played stairway to heaven they didn't sing it but they did play the whole thing (laughs) so i know i mean how do you have like this kind of you know like how do you even know what you're in the middle of right you're just too busy being being really to recognize oh wow someday these guys will be an awesome band but at the time they were just neighbor boy neighborhood boys making noise and i was being supportive um and I, you know, and I, I will say it's kind of an interesting yet bittersweet end is that for Dennis's funeral, his father wanted them to play Stairway to Heaven. And it created kind of a, shall we say, chaotic moment in funeral planning. Um, and, and, you know, the folks at SST thought, oh, my God, you're going to have all these punkers at this funeral and you're going to play Stairway to Heaven. Have you no idea what this is going to do? I mean, there will be riots, right? (laughs) So everybody was wringing their hands and freaking out about it. But they did play Stairway to Heaven, and in fact, there were no riots. Uh, But, you know, for me, it was more just sort of bringing me back full circle to that first moment when they asked me to play, you know, what song I wanted to hear. So if you want to get back to the beginning, though, we moved on from chess to books to discussing politics and philosophy um Dennis, the older brother Jimmy was in Vietnam right. at that point um when Jimmy went he actually went a little bit later than most of the boys in our neighborhood so I don't know how he managed to dodge that bullet for a minute um and some of the boys unfortunately in our neighborhood came back in body bags some of them made it back and I will never forget the day that Jimmy rolled up on a Harley with his hair flying in the back straight out of like an art from kind of comic and he rolled up, you know, and he was back from Vietnam, um, riding a Harley. So, um, but you know, Vietnam was something that did loom heavy on us.
1: So you guys kind of get through high school or you do, I suppose.
2: Well, that's okay. And that's where the departure was, right? So not, so it must've been spring break of 75 when that, that beginning band was, I think that was the underpinnings of the band that went on to be called bright orange band. Um, And that then I moved away for, um, for high school. My father lives in Colorado. So I decided to go check that scene out. You know, Dennis had stayed there. So yeah. So for high school, I left San Pedro. I went off to Boulder and my, um, and you know, my mom stayed. But right before that, Janice's mother died and she died of cancer, um, kind of rather suddenly. I mean, like nobody knew she had cancer and it was like, sort of like at the very end. Right. Um, and you know, and I'll never forget that phone call from my mom telling me, I mean, it was her best friend, but also, you know, it was Janice's mom. Right. And it was this woman that I had, You know, learn to really admire for her amazing resolve and strength and just kind of inner power. And you've got to remember, this is, you know, 1977. Um, There wasn't the Internet and cell phones and even pagers back then. Um, Certainly not for regular old people like us. Right. right? So um, so we lost touch. And my mom in particular, she wasn't even able to stay in San Pedro or anywhere in the city of Los Angeles. She ended up moving, if you were to look on a map, you know, if she moved from San Pedro, the southernmost point of Los Angeles, to Pomona, which is, you know, to drive there on all the freeways that you have to take, it's fully 65 miles away, um, which is far, really far, and especially back then. And then especially, you know, then I would come home and visit from Colorado, well, there's not a lot of adults that are going to hand, you know, some stupid 16 or 17 year old keys to a car and tell her to drive 65 miles on a freeway. Right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it sucked. I would come home to visit my mom, but it wasn't home. And, you know, my friends were still in San Pedro, but she wasn't. Um, so that made it difficult. And I didn't reconnect with Dennis until our until I was in my early twenties. Well, we both were. He's a couple years older than me, but still, it was our early twenties, and it was pure happenstance how we quote unquote bumped into each other. I um, I had this friend who called me up and said, "Hey, you know my friends are playing, blah blah blah. Do you want to come see them?" And um, it was a show at the Club Lingerie, and uh, uh, and so. So I went, I mean, I, you know, sight unseen, it was just sort of like, yeah, sure. I'm available. We'll go. We went, the band that were his friends, were my friend Kevin's friends was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Okay. And this was their first show ever. And they were opening for the Minute Minute Club lingerie on what was the eve of Dee Boone's birthday of um, 1983. And so I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, reading this thing. I watched the show that the Red Hots did and I looked at my friend and I said, well, those kids are onto something. Are, are
1: you a, like a punk rocker <laughs> at this point?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. No. When I moved back to LA, I guess I should qualify this. Sorry. So we skipped over high school is over. Then I moved back to LA. I moved back to San Pedro. Um, and you know, whatever, get on with my life. Punk rock was jumping. It was live. It was everywhere. And I was very immersed in that scene Interestingly enough, in all the same places as Dennis, but not aware of each other. Okay. It, and I also had this psychopath of a boyfriend at that point who was um, incredibly jealous and, you know, unable to allow me to even branch out and meet and talk to anybody. Right. So if maybe I hadn't been so controlled. Perhaps I would have noticed, hey, wait, you're D. Boone. I know you. Right. right. Um, I knew that the Minutemen were Dennis and Michael. And um, I had a Girlfriend who uh, whose boyfriend ran a record store, and so she would bring me all the latest and greatest. And that's how you know when I saw the first Minuteman record, I was like, "Wait, don't you remember Mike Watt? Don't you remember Mike Watt?" To us, was Mindy's brother. Okay. And as <laughs> <laughs> um, Michael's sister, Mindy was in Girl Scouts with us, and uh, Dennis was, uh, you know, obviously the that boy next door right. that I knew. Um, and so I, you know, I realized it, but. I hadn't been able to make contact and, um, and like I said, then found myself stumbling into club lingerie on the eve of D. birthday. And that's when I'm looking at the little card, you know, of what band. they would put these, they'd print these little cards, kind of like bookmarker type things that had, you know, all the, who was playing every night of the week. Right. right. So I'm going, wait, red hot chili peppers. That's your friend. Yeah. Okay, cool. They're, they're onto something. And I'm like minute Wait, I think I know these guys. <laughs> 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 um, Um, And so then I was like, oh, cool. Well, ironically, um, Kevin, my friend, wanted to go backstage to go talk to his friends. So we go backstage, but we get there and the Red Hots are not there because they're still too young and they're underage and they're not allowed to be in a 21 and over club. So Brendan Mullen, who was the booker who had booked the show, he had kicked them out. And, And so when we got backstage, right, you know, Kevin's like, wait, where are those guys? And he talked to somebody. And by then I had seen Dennis, so I kind of waved Kevin on to go find his friends. I was gonna go talk to mine, right. Right? <laughs> and I walked up to Dennis and then said, "Hey, Dennis," and recited our address that caught his attention, right? You know, like eleven twenty eight Battery Street, and he looks up and then and I said, "Linda Kite." Now, mind you, you have to remember this is now fully eight years later that we hadn't seen each other. And I will admit that when I left at 15, I was this anorexic little jock, kind of, you know, waif of a thing. And then when I came back, obviously, and by the time I was, you know, in my early 20s, um, let's just say I had filled out a little bit. And he about fell off his chair. You know, he's like, whoa, and started screaming at Michael, going, bones, bones, remember Linda Kite? (laughs) And then Michael turns around and he says... Yeah, she was Mindy's friend.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> See, we're back to Mindy. And, uh, and, you know, we exchanged phone numbers and agreed to contact each other later, and thus we did. Mm-hmm. But um, it, was an interesting, it was an interesting sort of reconnection when you think about it. I certainly had no intention of it going, you know, I didn't even know what I was doing. I was flying blind that night, right? right. It was one of those, what are you doing Tuesday night? I said, eh, I'll go, sure, I'll go. Um, and and thus it began
1: did it kind of rekindle pretty quickly like get serious pretty fast Well,
2: you know, see so here's the thing when we were children we were just next door neighbor kids right mm-hmm. started with chess went on to books went on to philosophical conversations then it went on to sports he taught me how to play basketball we played tackle football in the middle of the street baseball I mean sports right this was the 60s and early 70s We were kids. We played. We played hard. We got dirty. (laughs) And and so that was, you know, the extent of kind of our friendship. Um, By the time junior high school kicked in, I was, you know, way too self-obsessed and more into surfing and older boys that had cars that could take me to beaches to go surfing. And Dennis had none of that to offer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) just. So let's just say at that point, we sort of went our separate ways, but we were still neighbor kids and we still attended each other's birthday parties and our moms were still friends. So, you know, we still hung out. Um, But not in the way we did when we were younger. That's, there was a notable sort of, you know, partying the ways. And so at the time that Dennis and I started hanging, I was not emotionally available for him or anybody else. And I made that abundantly clear at the front end, right? right. When he did, um, finally pick up the phone and set up a date. Uh, what our big date was, the first one was that we were going to show each other slides of our respective peer, uh, trips to Europe. Okay. Cause you got to remember, these are two kids from public housing, right. right? Right. And we made it to Europe and we each made it to Europe on our own dime on our own, you know, whatever volition. Right. Yeah. So there we were, um, you know, eight years later showing each other slides of our respective trips to Europe and you know generally reconnecting and hanging out and you know talking about the old times um it was from that that then you know he it turned out ironically is that and this is this is a really weird thing for LA being as big as it is we're 470 square miles yeah you can drive all day in LA and never leave the city right um yeah, it's and it's what we do. <laughs> That's why we get cool cars with good stereo. Um that said, uh here, you know, after having grown up in San Pedro, which is a very unique town, and now here we were fully well I was where I was living, um, was now it's this neighborhood called Palms, sort of Beverly Wood, Palms is kind of the neighborhood and it's it's Beverly Hills adjacent is one way to put it. It's the west side of los angeles but um uh west of downtown i guess would be the way to put it but uh it would be safe to say that it's anywhere from 20 25 miles away from san pedro maybe even 30 depending depending which route you take um i was living off of national at robertson Mm -hmm. and dennis was living off of robertson at national yeah, no, right? <laughs> Cross Robertson and National, we were just holding down two other sides of that same corner. Kind of weird. Yeah, no kidding. Kind of weird, right? I mean, you can't make this up. <laughs> right? So, cuz yeah, we exchange phone numbers, get a hold of each other, set up the thing. He comes over with his slides. I got the, you know, projector and the whole thing ready to roll. And lo and behold, we're walking distance from Your each other. Corner, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, ah, you know, and nobody walks in L.A. except we were able to. So anyhow, it turned out, you know, I was working in Beverly Hills at the time, and and he would invariably call me at work and say, "Hey, do you want to go see Pell-Mell and Angst tonight?" And I would or Angst, and I would say, "Sure, that sounds fun." He'd say, "Oh, great, pick me up at blah blah blah, and we'll blah blah blah." Yeah. Well, when he realized that I had a Volkswagen van at my disposal, um, he basically would commandeer me to kind of roadie for him though I've been told that to be a roadie you have to carry things right um occasionally I carried flyers or a guitar okay (laughs) (laughs) but mostly I just drove the van (laughs) (laughs) but that's what he would do right he would just call me up and you know hit me up for a ride and then I would go pick up his stuff and we'd go do whatever show he had to
1: play at right so at this point you're kind of in the Minutemen SST orbit a little bit
2: <laughs> well, the first couple times, right, we he kind of kept it on the down low, but he definitely availed himself of my services and kindness. And um and so yes, I went, I picked him up, I, you know, we went to the took him to the show. And this is what I was going to say was that as we were driving the first time, right, I picked him up because it was he was on my way to my house, right? I picked him up at his corner, went to my corner and I had to change out of my work clothes And he was, you know, staring at me really weird. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. So it's like mad rush hour traffic, right? And I pull over and I go, listen, buddy, I already explained to you what's going on with me. I told you I'm not interested in a relationship. And if that's what you're looking for, that's not going to happen, dude. That's not going to happen. Not how I'm rolling right now. Not what's on my mind. Not what I'm interested in. And if you can't respect that, you need to get out of the car right now. Right now. This is not happening. (laughs) did you ask me if I was punk rock (laughs) and he just looked at me stunned first of all that I had such a nasty mouth on me but second of all you know he was speechless and all he could do was just shake his head and say to me damaged (laughs) damaged (laughs) damaged (laughs) and he's like no man it's cool we're fine don't worry about it and I was like, OK, as long as you know what the parameters are, then, you know, we're good. Right. So that was that. And that's how we did it. And um, that was the proverbial. My first roading experience, I had to set the ground rules. Um, and later he would go on to tell me that, um, you know, that same evening, that part of what he was staring at is he couldn't believe the sheer volume of makeup on my face. Um, and it's true. I mean, I worked Beverly Hills. I definitely would put on my war mask and get up there and do my thing. And it was just part of the spiel. Right. Right. Um, (laughs) you had to put on, you know, inches of makeup in order to look exactly the way, whatever the expectations were. Um, but you know, I would probably get home, chisel half of it off and get on with my punk rock. Uh, um, that, original roadie and stuff. Eventually he did take me to SST to meet the rest of the folks. And, um, I believe the first impression was something to the effect of D Boone. We like your girlfriend and all, but you know, she seems smart and cool and she's obviously good looking, but why is she so new wave? (laughs) And the comment of the new wave was that I used to wear really bright colors because I was kind of new wave in terms of my fashion sense. And that is what was happening at the time. And I was part of the fashion industry. So I was pretty caught up in that moment. Um, But I got the memo and promptly just wore black. It was pretty easy to fix. I mean, (laughs) big deal. (laughs) Um, And, you know, um, while Dennis was passing or whatever, fronting that we were boyfriend and girlfriend. I mean, we were not romantically involved at that point. I was, like I said, I was not emotionally available, but we were, you know, friends for so long that it was easy and comfortable and, and, um, familiar. Right. Right. Um, and, and it was safe for me because he had agreed to my terms. Right. right? (laughs) It's like, dude, don't cross this line and we're good (laughs) to go. And,
1: eventually it did
2: turn into something more yeah it it took me a year it took me a year to figure it out and come to my senses and I you know wasn't really that interested in being some musician's girlfriend I just didn't really you know I I know that other girls probably flocked to that opportunity that wasn't very interesting to me at the time (laughs) and and with good reason quite frankly but um there you have it um, it wasn't until the double nickels tour that I would realize that actually I had fallen in love with him um, and and of course you know it wasn't until then that until when once I finally proclaimed my love to him and admitted it um, then you know all of his truths came out and he had kind of been counting on that moment and sort of you know playing a long game but also it came you know he let me know how he had had a big crush on me in that junior high period when I sort of blew him off for surfers, right? Servers, right? <laughs> so, so, but you know, it helped. It helped that we had that baseline friendship. It helped that we had that childhood together, and that we kind of came from the same place, even if we came at it from very different ways. Um, my mom was, you know, was Mexican. I grew up in a monolingual Spanish-speaking, you know, uh, household. Yeah, I could speak English outside of the house, but inside of the house, it was Spanish and Spanish only. And um, obviously, his house was not that. Um, and so, so you know, while we came at it from different places, at the end of the day, it's really that neighborhood and sort of that that cloth that I tried to describe earlier, right? How we were all weaving this community together with our respective, you know, cultures and differences and ideas and places, you know, histories and places we'd come from. But then we sort of collided together by these circumstances in a way that I think, you know, was rich and, and you know, made us, the, made us the worldly people that we were as very young, you know, students of life, right? Um, if you think, you know, if you look at Genesis Lyric, if, if you listen to them, if you can kind of capture sort of the essence of what he was trying to communicate. Much of that is rooted in, in how we grew up and what we experienced.
1: Yeah. So you, you were on the Double Nichols tour?
2: I did not go on the tour. I had my own van. <laughs> um, and so ironically, I mean, you know, it's whatever. It's just ironic, I guess yeah. would be the word. Uh, that The Dodge van is a van that I bought for him you know, for, for them to use for the band and for the tour. Um, but the, I still had my Volkswagen band and, um, it was 1984 in Los Angeles. We were having, we were hosting the Olympics. I was in college. Um, I was a waitress at the time I'd left Beverly Hills behind. I was a waitress. I was, um, not interested in waitressing during the Olympics. I wasn't going to summer school and I did not want to be in LA during all that. Mind you, it was before we knew that the Soviet bloc was going to pull out, right? But still, I mean, we have a lot of traffic and a lot of tourists, and it's horrible here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I had made arrangements, actually, to go to Tallahassee, Florida, to spend the summer. Um, my stepmother needed a house sitter, and she was you know, leaving for the summer. Now, I know why. If you've ever spent a summer in Florida, let me just tell you, not a destination. <laughs> um, but... For me at the time, it was fine and it was the breather that I needed. And, and actually, that's how I realized I had fallen in love with Dennis because I was, you know, again, this was before cell phones. So he's having to, uh, while on tour, he's checking in with me, you know, in Tallahassee and he would call and I kept missing these phone calls. Here, I never went anywhere because it was too hot to leave the house. And then the few times that I did leave the house, he happened to call. And so I kept missing these calls. And after a handful of missed phone calls, I just remember collapsing on the floor crying one time because I just missed the call again. And then it was like, well, why are you crying? What is this? And then I realized, oh, my God, I'm in love with this man. And then, um, then they came on that tour and played Jacksonville Beach. And, um, he, um, I guess I skipped over the part where at some point, um, I moved, we both, he, he left the place on Robertson and I left the place on national more or less around the same time. Um, he, I guess he just didn't have the money to keep paying the rent. And so he had moved to SST and then something happened and he wasn't living at SST anymore. And he hadn't told anybody where he was, and then I'm getting phone calls from people at SST asking me, "Where is Dennis? And you know, where is D Boone? Have you seen him?" And I'm like, "No, I kind of haven't heard from him in a little while. What's up? Where is he? You know, where do you guys know?" Nobody knew, and then I said, "Okay, you know what? I'm going to be in Pedro. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go. I know where they practice. I'll go. You know, I know what the schedule is. I'll go check it out." And so I went to the practice pad. And I was just going to leave a note on his mm-hmm. car, you know, tell him to get me a call and people were looking for him. And when I went to go place it on the windshield, I noticed a blanket and a pillow in the backseat of the car. And basically he was so broke that he was homeless and he was living in his car, at the, you know, for those few weeks. And when I saw the pillow and the blanket, I was like, Oh shit. Right. You know, and I was like, he's not even, no wonder he's not calling anybody and he's not, not going to answer this note. So instead I just stalked him and waited in the car until he came out and then I just confronted him. And at that point, because I had left, um, well, I think I was transitioning out of my place in, in Palms down to San Pedro. I had rented this house for my mom who had decided to leave her third husband, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I, um, I told Dennis, you know, it's like I've got this massive house for my mom. You're welcome to stay on the couch you know, I'm shuttling between the two places. I'm eventually going to consolidate and move to Pedro. But, you know, for now, I'm straddling these two homes. Huh? For now, I'm overhoused, right? I have an apartment and I have a house. So um, so he ended up moving in with us. But still, you know, we were just friends and I had very clear boundaries. And then, you know, so by 84, when we were on that double, when he was doing the double nickels tour, we met up in Jacksonville Beach. And that's when I had to tell him to his face my feelings and the nice promoter got us our own room by golly and lovely (laughs) (laughs) and that's where I'll leave it (laughs) cut (laughs) sorry yeah and and then you know but so then for that I did like some more stops in Florida I think we went all the way down to Miami Beach and then you know back up and then then I must I don't know I guess I must have driven up to the Atlanta show and did a couple more stops with them there, but then we, you know, parted ways again while they did some more of the South. And I went back to Tallahassee to pack out. And then we met in new Orleans. And so kind of caravaned okay. back for that last part of the tour. Um, but let the record show. I always had my own van. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, so no, I did not tour with them. I did not get in the van. I had my own van. A highlight on that. Double Nichols tour coming home was Oklahoma City. I don't think they actually played OKC. Okay, I think they played Norman, which is like a suburb. But I get it confused, so I'm sure somebody can look it up. Um, it was this weird kind of speakeasy place, and Wayne Coyne had okay. put the show together. So Flaming Lips were the opening band, and then there was this weird. 80s New Wave cover band was the second slot and then Minutemen were the headliner so nobody was there for the Flaming Lips except us and then all of a sudden the place got packed for that 80s cover band and then as soon as they finished playing the place emptied and then for the Minutemen it was me and my sister and my old sister had been along with me for this whole thing and then um so it was the flaming lips and me and my sister watching the Minutemen. And I remember at the end of the show, Dennis saying to me, thank you for dancing, man. That was really nice. <laughs> like, you know, going, well, of course I'm here. You're playing. How can I not dance? A memory, dude. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, those, that's, what, that's what touring was like at that level and at that point, right? I mean, you had good days and bad days. But, um, and then we made it back. And, um, and then, you know, whatever, Dennis and I were in a relationship. My mom had bagged on the whole, you know, I'm going to make it out on my own. She'd gone back to her husband again. But she left me the kids. I don't know what that was about. So she left my brother and sister to me in my house but we had the the room that my mom vacated was sort of this rotating cast of characters, starting with, um, you know, Janice's brother Joe lived with us for a while. He had just come out of the military as well. Um, and then um, that's where Rob Holtzman lived for a while. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. So my brother, Richard Derrick shared that room with my brother. My brother's room was always, there was four bunk beds in there. So there was always, several people several underemployed (laughs) musicians rotating in and out of that room um most noteworthy would be like i said richard derrick um and and there's just other random local people that blew in and out of that room and out of that house i think we used to refer to it as the punk rock commune at the time um and that was you know that was one of dennis's kind of goals was how could we have you know a punk rock commune um we got pretty close to it and we also got really tired of it. It also became the place where touring bands would come and stay. So um, SST bands, so like Husker Du would come to town to do you know record business stuff and they would go ahead and stay with us for whatever the week or two that they'd be in town. Same with the Meat Puppets and um, Bad Brains came and stayed. I mean, you know, various bands that were touring would come and stay. would D boo um Dennis was also quite well known for um calling me and saying I'm an hour away and I've got some people with me can you have dinner ready for eight <laughs> yes eight people you know with an hour's notice right? <laughs> so um and that was fine I mean generally I had contingency right. plans for that um yes random weird things right stuff that this was very real at the time. And, and when you look back at it from this perspective, it's like, wow, you know, Which I mean, when I, you know, if I sit back and think about who was it, when, and you know, what record executive or what, you know, whoever from whatever that just, they all thought Dee was cool. And he would invite them over for dinner <laughs> and give me an hour's notice to whip something up. <laughs> And mind you, I was juggling a job and college and punk rock and, you know, being Stephen's girlfriend and being my younger brother and sister's surrogate mom and whatever else you wanted to put on my overflowing plate of things. Oh, and of course, activism. Right. I was the one that was um, running the U.S. out of Central America chapter um, at the college level. Right. I ran um, if you start a club in the Cal State system, they give you a budget. And you can use that budget for anything you want, including paying oh, speakers. Wow. <laughs> so, we had Rigoberta Menchu come up from Guatemala. And once I figured out that racket, right, I, I said, Well, if Cal State does it, see, you know, UC must do it. And I just hooked up with all the different chapters. And we did, in fact, bring Rigoberta Menchu to California to do a speaking series. And um, she's that guatemalan leader who went on to get a nobel peace prize recently but back then she was still largely unknown and i could get her five grand for speaking at each university well, right so you know set up a handful of dates and she's walking away with a cool twenty-five, fifty <laughs> grand right <laughs> um, and that was a lot of money back then and certainly if you were taking it back to guatemala to yeah, continue no yeah you know, I mean, the the funny story specifically on that Rigoberta tour was that that was when the um, King of the Hill video was being filmed. And um, and so they were going to be shooting the video all day. I had this event where we were having Rigoberta come speak. There'd been this documentary that had been made. And so she was going to speak before it. And we had this little theater premiere of it. And so, you know, I had the stuff for the bake sale, for the fundraiser, for the, you know, US out of Guatemala right. thing right? <laughs> that was happening over in Long Beach and I had my whole very busy day and in fact I had to go to LAX to go pick her up to drive her to this event right and I get the phone call either the night before or that morning whatever it was and Michael you know was giving me all the orders I'm like what he's giving me all the orders about what my role was in their video and all this stuff and I go wait what when is this what and he's like no you know blah 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 You know, didn't D. Boone tell you? I'm like, this is the first time hearing of any of this. I'm not available that day. I have other things (laughs) going on. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, no, but this is our important video. And we got this, you know, fancy director and this budget. I'm like, well, then you need to reschedule it, dude, because I'm not (laughs) available this day. (laughs) I've got a scheduling conflict here. And he's like, well, who cares about that? This is more important. I'm like, no, it's not. What I do matters and it matters to me. And this woman's traveling here from Guatemala, dude. I think you can reschedule your video shoot.
1: And did they reschedule?
2: <laughs> it's made no. A big... no, no, we just had a big fight about it and he had to rewrite his script on the fly because I wasn't available for his video. Um, that said, I did, however, cater the after party, so can we just, you know that counts for give me? Something. give a girl yeah. credit here, right? <laughs> By, activist by day, caterer by evening. <laughs> you know? so, but, um, but yeah, you know, that's just how crazy that scene was at that time where, you know, we were all just busy doing what we had to be doing to do what we, you know, right. to do our lives, right? Whatever it was that we were doing to add meaning to other people besides this band that I wasn't in <laughs> and wasn't interested in, right? Um, Which now gives you more context for how in the world by the time, um, you know, by 1985, right, they had done nine months of touring that year. It was grueling. We had busted up the punk rock commune. Um, Holtzman and Slovenly had moved up to San Francisco. Um, You know, my little brother had moved, whatever. My sister had gotten some other roommate. I mean, we had broken up that piece. And, um, and Dennis had decided, you know, it was time for he and I to get more serious, get our own place together. You know, things had moved on more romantically than whatever his utopian punk rock commune visions were. Um, and so we had gotten our own little house and, uh, and that's when he had gotten me to agree to marry him, um, because he made a very, well, prior to that, you know, he, when he confessed to me, you know, with the big crush he'd had on me as a child and, and just, you know, what a big joy it was that I finally came to my senses and fell in love with him. <laughs> um, one of the, one, you know, of course he wanted to get married right away. He wanted to get married after the double nickels tour. And I just was like, dude, what is your thing with marriage? We're anarchists and Atheists, why do you want us to register with the church and state just to prove we love each other i don't need either of their blessings right you know it's like you and i we can write our own vows we can jump over a guitar and for me that's good enough i don't need permission from those (laughs) other people (laughs) (laughs) so so we did do that we um after double nickels i mean i talked him down off of the whole marriage thing and to like hey how about this how about we exchange our own vows and jump over the guitar um and so we did that and then and we had had a little economic setback there so Devo had arranged for us to roadie uh, part of Black Flag down to Tijuana because they were playing a show down there um and and so by roading down there, it got us gas money there and back, which basically gave us a little bit of gas money to have a little bit of a honeymoon after our guitar jumping ceremony to ourselves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> truth, truth, truth be told. And so we, you know, did deliver. We, I think we drove Kira and Bill down to Tijuana, but then they ended up riding back with, right. you know, with the band. And Devo jumped out of the van and rode with us. So yeah, Devo was on our little honeymoon, and um, our other friends, Elise and Harlan. That said, the later by '85, he was just insistent, like you know, we got to get married. You got to marry me, blah blah blah. And I was just like, dude, you know what? We did the guitar. I'm good, really. And then finally, he came back with a very compelling case, and I, I was just fixing to start. Um, in fact, I had, I had just started grad school that, that first quarter, that fall. And he came back from whatever that part of the tour was and, and was insistent. And what he, his case was that, look, you've taken care of me all this time. You know, you've always been the one that the money and this all together and kept all this going. And now I'm in a position to help you. And so, you know, you just started grad school, you know, on, um, you know, on grad school and let, uh, you know, let me take care of you for a change and I'm going to be making enough money. And if we get married, then I'm able to, um, what is the word? You know, I'm able, we'll we'll get a good tax Mm -hmm. cut, right? You know, a tax break rather if we're married and you're you're depending on me and it's just my income. So I said, well, let me see the books. (laughs) (laughs) So we went, we, We met, well, I'm a practical girl. Can I say I was starting my MBA, right? So, you know, I was going to make sure that it was going to pencil out. Um, And so went and met with Mugger. He showed me what was what, it penciled out. I said, oh, okay, I guess I see that. Um, And so I went to, you know, so then I, whatever, didn't have to have a big job anymore and could just focus on school. And that last tour... Um, he, I was really excited. Like I was, I just knocked out my first quarter of business, you know, my MBA and, um, was, you know, couldn't wait for Dennis to get home from tour because the me puppets were going to play and they were going to play downtown LA and I was going to get to go see what was fast becoming my favorite band. So I was really excited because Dennis was coming home. We could go together. Right. And he gets home. And I, you know, make my proposal. And he looks at me and he's like, I have just been on tour for nine months. You've got to be kidding. The last thing I want to do is go to a club and see a band play. Right. I'm like, a band? It's the Meat Puppets. <laughs> and he's like, I don't really care. And I'm like, when are we going to see another band besides yours? <laughs> sorry. (laughs) So one of those immature fights that 20 something year olds have when they're buckling under stress. Um, did I say I had just finished finals? Um, and, uh, be careful what you ask for because it was one of those really effed up fights. Um, you know, like I said, those were fighting words. When are we going to see another band besides yours? And he said, you're nothing but a groupie and, uh, yeah, not nice, not nice. Yeah. And a few days later, he would be dead. So, you know, sometimes you got to watch what you say and you got to make sure not to say really stupid things like that. Um, let the record show. The Meat Puppets are my favorite band. Sorry, Dennis, but <laughs> it happens. It's OK. Doesn't just doesn't diminish what a great band the Men were.
1: I think you 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 work for the Meat Puppets or work with them now.
2: I actually have the very fine privilege of, you know, those Kirkwood brothers seeing me through and truly being my anchor through this incredible journey that's the aftermath of Deepin um, and stumbled into being a merch slinger. Um, You know, that MBA in me actually has a way of uh, transacting Quite effectively. And if you happen to brush past me, you, I will make sure to take all your cash and you will walk away with some pretty awesome souvenirs. (laughs) You won't regret it. We will transact and you will be happy because, you know, whatever I sell you will be awesome. Um, But no, I mean, you know, for, for me, Puppets, what we're doing at this point, which is pretty cool and why it's easy for me to do is uh, we carry the whole SST catalog. We reissued it. They were one of the first bands to fight to get their rights back from Brick in. And um, we just press it ourselves. So I have a pop-up record store. How easy is that, right? I mean, you know, kids in a candy store. And then, um, you know, obviously CDs and T-shirts and whatever else. We had Christmas ornaments this year for the first time. Um, But yeah, really cool little black Christmas ball with, you know, the original logo on it. Um, and so I stumbled into that by virtue of being a friend and obviously a fan. I mean, it, they really are my favorite band in the world, not just because I happened to know them, none of that. I mean, it was a very organic process where there was just something about their music that just drew me to it and got caught my attention. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's just it happens to be a privilege that we know each other, and are fond of each other as human beings. And like I said, I mean, they've definitely been the anchor for me through this entire journey. Um, And it was their manager that just asked for some help one night when he was slinging and had to go do important manager things. And he said, hey, can you help me with this? And, you know, I'm like, well, do you have prices? I mean, do you have a cash register? Where's your cash box, right? And he didn't have any of that because, you know, he's a rock and roll manager, not a merch slinger. So I quickly said okay you know let me figure this out and when he came back you know he went just had to go do whatever when he came back a bit ago and my terms were it's all right i don't mind slinging during the opening bands but once the me puppets are on you know i gotta dance that's what i'm here for
1: well i'm sure most people that are listening to this are you know aware of how d boone passed away and and uh do you mind taking us back to that
2: yeah not a problem so fast forward big fight about you know when are we gonna see another man besides yours um and uh and so you know he did get me to agree to marry him and like i said i checked it out with you know mugger who was at that time the accountant for meat puppet i mean for meat puppets for sst and um and then, you know, so I said, okay, it's on, you know, you can afford this. It makes sense on paper. It's the only justification I can understand for getting married. And so I know what a romantic, but, um, and so the first person that he wanted to tell was my mom, um, you know, for all the obvious reasons that at this point she was more or less a surrogate mom to him. And, you know, after his mom passing, my mom was the clo- like sort of the closest tie that he had with her. And um, and at that time, my mom was back living in Tucson. So we had uh, we were driving to Tucson to go tell her the good news um, just prior to the accident. Uh, well, the night before, in fact, we had had a big fancy dinner in Beverly Hills with um, the folks that, you know, w- the woman that was going to be my maid of honor and then his um, best man. Um, and the dude that was going to marry us and, you know, the whole nine yards. Right. So we had had this dinner party to basically make the arrangements. And the plan was to get married in Europe because they were going to do a European tour over, you know, whatever, over the winter. And part of it was catching my, um, Christmas break because after all I was a college student and I had a schedule and I had things to do. Right. So our, so the plan was we would, you know, I would go with him to that European tour so that he and I could get married and then he would go off on tour and I would come back and knock out another quarter of business school. Um, And so, you know, there we were, we'd had this dinner. Now that nine months of touring that in fact, 1985, at whatever point Dennis decided he would become vegan. I had been vegan for years at that point and he you know, decided to adopt some healthy lifestyle thing. It's, you know, ironic as all get out because it was, he lost like 100 pounds. He was probably in the best shape he'd ever been. And one of the, I think the terrors that we all had collectively when we would watch him perform was he was going to have a freaking heart attack on stage because of just how insanely energetic he was. Um, and, you know, you can ask Carducci, he had the same fears. I mean, all of us would just stand there just sort of like, ah. Um and so here he was right on top of his game, really healthy, you know, lost weight, lot, you know, just physically fit, all of it. And, um, that place that we went to for this, you know, big fancy—I guess we can even call it an engagement party dinner, whatever. I don't really, you know, almost a rehearsal dinner, but stateside, right? Um, and he decided to share a rack of ribs with you know, this dude that was going to officiate our wedding. And, um, and it made him really sick the next day. I mean, well that night and the next day. And unfortunately I did still have this job and it was the retail job and it was Christmas. And so, you know, I had to go to work. Like I couldn't not go to work. Right. It was like the Saturday before Christmas or something. And so, I left him um, at home sick and, you know, rushed off to work and, uh, um, you know, and then called people all day long, called to check on him and called people all day long um, to go in and check on him because he was so sick. Right. And I was pissed at him because I was like, dude, you can't be vegan for a year and then eat a rack of ribs. Like, what do you expect (laughs) is going to happen? Of course, your stomach hurts. (laughs) I was like, Come on, dude! This is not how it's to be, right? And and you know, and let the record show, I was not vegan for any political or ethical reasons. I mean, that's all fine and well and good, and I get it. But it, I wasn't some like dogmatic thing about it, right? It just, I don't really like meat, so it was easy. Um, uh, it did piss me off though that he made himself sick with me. <laughs> <laughs> And so then, um, the van had some weird radiator leak thing going on. And because originally the plan was he would drop me off at work and then he would go get the van fixed and, you know, then we'd be able to leave right after work to go, uh, to my mom. Um, he didn't get it done and I, you know, I instead picked him up and picked everybody up. Um, and, and my little sister, I made my little sister go with us cause it's her mom too said come on we're gonna go to Christmas at mom's just deal with it let's go uh she when I got there to pick her up she was really sick with the flu so she had the flu he was sick with this whatever beef attack and I was driving (laughs) I was driving after working all day so um and at some point uh you know it was really late at night at some point I felt some weird kind of drag on the, you know, left rear kind of part, the left rear wheel. And I thought for sure we had a flat tire. Um, A couple other things is that there was equipment in the van. We had Mike Watts bass amp and I don't know, there was guitars or stuff. And part of it had to do with this new house that Dennis and I had moved into the house next door. There were these active junkies that lived there and it was actually kids we'd known from the neighborhood prior um, you know, from our own neighborhood. And so we knew, we knew the whole drill that was going on. So detonus didn't feel comfortable leaving guitars or, you know, Michael's bass amp behind in case the kids broke in and stole shit. So we just had that stuff in the van with us. Um, we, and, and so, you know, when I felt the drag on the wheel, I, you know, immediately was like, oh man, I've got a flat and i was going probably 85 miles an hour um you know in the fast lane in the middle of the desert in arizona with very few other cars on the road um so you know being a seasoned driver i knew enough to rather than slam on the brakes to just sort of ease up off the gas and thinking it would just eventually come to a stop because the flat tire would stop right. rolling right um instead it wasn't a flat tire it was the left rear wheel axle was actually um, it's actually a manufacturing defect, like it happened to all the same, you know, most of the model, most of the vans of that model of that year. Um, and so uh, next thing I remember was that the, the wheel came off. I don't remember the part about the wheel coming off, per se, but I just remember the part about being airborne. And so when the wheel came off, it caused the axle to hit the side of the road, and that made the van go airborne. We rolled one and three quarter times. Um, and landed passenger side down in the process of it rolling. My sister had been thrown out of the van and Dennis had been thrown out of the van. Um, and, uh, I, because I was in the driver's seat, it didn't, I didn't, uh, well, the other part, which is like the tricky part. And this is, it's always fascinated me. It's like how your body protects itself from whatever trauma and tragedy. Right. When we went airborne, I mean, I realized, right? And so I just screamed. And Dennis and Janine were both asleep the whole time because, like I said, right, she was sick of the flu, he was sick with whatever, his gut attack, and uh, I was driving. So I said, um, you know, I just started screaming. And, um, and, you know, I screamed. I said, you guys, we're having an accident. (laughs) It's like weird shit you come up with. And so um, once we landed, I it was actually me falling from the, you know, gravity sucks. So I was falling from the driver's seat to the passenger seat and my ankle struck the carburetor. If you know, like those old 79 Dodge vans, basically the engine is in the middle and that big console thing that you use for your beverages right. and chain yeah. change. That's actually where the engine part is. So um, my ankle hit that carburetor and pulverized on impact that impact, that pain, that pulverization process was so intense that that's what got me to come back to from blacking out when I, you know, because I blacked out when I screamed, you guys, we're having an accident. Um, and when I came back to, you know, it was like, whoa, what's happening here? It was, it was like a twilight yeah. zone, right? The windshield wipers was, were moving the front windshield was completely smashed out why the engine was still on and why the wipers were on. You know, I mean, obviously the van had flipped so much. And so, you know, it took me a minute to kind of figure out, I was like, oh, okay. I better turn off the engine. Yeah. <laughs> That'll stop the windshield wipers. You know, I was like, what? And so I did that and then, you know, kind of climbed out. And that's when I realized that my ankle wasn't functioning. Um, so I literally crawled out of this ditch and flagged down help and, you know, that's when, uh, the cops came and the, um, uh, some good Samaritans helped and a truck driver called the cops. Um, the Samaritan, the good Samaritans put me in their car and went off to go look for Janine and, and Dennis. And, um, and then the cops came and next thing I know, I've got this cop interrogating me about, you know, what had happened. Well, I didn't know like I had no recall whatsoever about the wheel axle business. All I knew is I woke up at the bottom of a ditch. Right. Right. And so when they're asking me all this, I mean, and I'm in shock. I mean, I've just been in like a really horrible car accident. Right. And I've got a cop up in my grill, just asking me all these intense questions over and over and over and over and and trying to catch me in some kind of lie, Right. You know? Right. And all I could say to him was like, I don't know, man, all I can think of, because he kept saying, well, what happened? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I must have fallen asleep at the wheel because I don't know. I mean, next thing I know, I'm cruising, and here I am at the bottom of a ditch. I really don't know what happened, right? right? And then he's like, well, you know, who was driving? Well, well, if you were tired, why didn't you pull over? And I go, that's just it. I wasn't tired. I had just passed a rest stop. If I had been tired, I would have pulled over. I mean, dude, come on. I drive. I, I know how to do these long drives, right? And he's like, well then why did you fall asleep at the wheel? I mean, you yeah, know, this is like the stupidest kind of thing. And meanwhile, I'm just, you know, I'm like in shock from just having had this horrible car accident, right? Right. And so, um, I mean, if you read those transcripts, they're completely nonsensical, especially when he says, well, why were you driving? You know, why were you the only one driving? And I'm like, because they were asleep. <laughs> like, <you> know, <laughs> how do you expect them to drive? I'm the one that was awake. They were sleeping. I don't know. What are you thinking here? Whatever. So it's like this complete insane um, transcript back and forth, um, and and so then afterwards, when I got released from the hospital, it was Dennis's dad who had come. You know, he'd come to town, and he had gone to the site of the accident. And like I said, he was a mechanic, right? So he looked at the police report, looked at the accident, looked at the jag in the ground where the wheel axle had, you know, like penetrated the area, looked where the, you know, looked at the skid marks and he just looked at everything. And he forensically kind of reconstructed it, went to the tow yard, the impound yard where the the van was, you know, looked at that, looked at everything. And so he came to me and I was actually staying at um, Dennis's dad's sister's house right at Dennis's aunt's house um and he's, you know and he's asking me questions about the accident right and he says Linda at what point do you remember the wheel axle thing right or however he phrased it right and and when he said that to me it was the weirdest sensation ever because mm-hmm. next thing I know like my memory just Uh, spit out a series of slides of like very kind of of that process that I just described to you where I'm driving along. I think it's a flat. Next thing I, you know, I'm slowing down. Next thing I know, bam, right. We're airborne and I'm screaming, you guys, we're having an accident. Well, that little piece of the wheel drag business, I had completely blocked that out when the cops were, you know, busy interrogating me. Um, and so, you know, the police report says originally that what I said was, I don't know, I must have fallen asleep at the wheel. How do I know what happened? Um, and that's the official report that original reporters that looked into the situation, you know, pulled up. And thus that keeps getting repeated over and over in the press, because that's the story that people have to go from.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. It's a uh, that's a very obviously traumatic event for anybody to go through. and
2: It is traumatic, you know, you know and it happened 30 some odd years ago at 32 years ago. And, you know, it's a lot of therapy and a lot of work. And then just the straight up truth, right? So what happened is what happened. Um, the, the interesting part about that is, like I said, you know, there was a class action lawsuit on all of those 79 Dodge vans at the same wheel axle broke on all of them. Um, there's also, uh, you know, that was at the same time when Reagan, Reagan decided that people's lives weren't worth very much anymore. And so there was caps put so that, you know, trial lawyers, tort lawyers, personal injury attorneys could only get so much per head, whatever. So, um, Dennis's life was capped at a hundred thousand dollars. That's what the decision was. With that cheery note. <laughs> I think it's probably way late for you where you are.
1: Thanks a lot Linda for doing this. You're welcome.
2: Thanks for
0: sharing all of that and okay. Yeah, thank you.
2: Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Okay. Well, that was fascinating for me. Anyways, I really appreciate hearing that. Yeah, I mean, I don't
1: know how much she talks about, you know, the the accident and stuff, but it can't be easy to talk about that and um she has released some statements about that. Um, she released one in twenty fourteen, kind of uh, an article she wrote called uh, "The DeBoon: The Day the Music Died." I think she it got published in the LA Beat, and uh, just kind of setting the record straight about you know the accident itself and you know how you know how it came to came to be that. Uh, You know, lots of people thought she fell asleep at the wheel, which clearly had been haunting her for many years after that. And So hopefully, you know, uh, having her on the pod again goes some measure towards
0: correcting that historical inaccuracy. And again, this show and every Miniman episode, it's a tribute to Dee Boone.
1: Yeah. All right. On a lighter note, Ryan, let's get into my first bells, shall we?
0: You bet.
2: History Lesson, Part 2.
0: So, My First Bells, it's, it's actually called My First Bells, 1980 to 1983. And it's essentially, I mean, I think it's almost everything before Double Nickels on the Dime. On one cassette, it only ever came out on cassette. It has 62 songs on it. Now, it has a whole bunch of releases that we've been through before. It has the Paranoid Time EP on it, which is SST number two. It has the Joy EP, which we haven't covered yet. That's actually a new Alliance Records release, number four, which was subsequently released on SST as number 214. So we'll get to that in a couple of years. Yep. Uh, It has the Punchline which is SST4, which we've covered before. It also has the Bean Spill EP, which was released on Thermidor, Joe Carducci's label. After the Bean Spill EP, there is the What Makes a Man Start Fires LP, which was SST14, and then also the Buzz or Howl EP, which was SST16. Then there are three songs on this cassette that were pretty hard to find, I guess, at the time. Maybe they weren't maybe they were so hard if you had the original compilations that they were from. Maybe they were easier to find back then. Um, the first song, 9.30 May the 2nd, was uh, recorded around the Paranoid time. We've discussed that on that podcast as well. It's from a compilation called Cracks in the Sidewalk, which was originally released as New Alliance Records number one. and subsequently re-released on SST as SST-92. This has uh, the Miniman Black Flag, Saccharine Trust, a band called Kindled Imagination, Artless Entanglements, Sharp Corners, and it's just a 12-inch. It's got that Raymond Pettibone artwork, and we'll have to post that again. Very cool, and I mean, it's nice that they were able to collect that on the cassette You know, again, it's trying, I assume, to have everything except, you know, everything up to Double Nickels on the Dime almost on this one cassette. Yeah. The next song, Clocks, is off a compilation called Chunks, also on New Alliance Records. Actually, New Alliance Records number three, which was subsequently re-released on SST as SST-69. This has the Minuteman Clocks on it, but it also has um, Global Probing by the Descendants, Old Descendants on there, the Chiefs, who I really like, uh, Black Flag doing Machine, the Stains doing Sick and Crazy, a band called Peer Group, which is, I think it's a Pedro band, and that label, Water Under the Bridge Records, I don't know how recent it is, but I think in the last few years they released a single by Peer Group, like 30-some years later. Hmm. Uh, It's got a band called Vox Pop on it. I don't know anything about them.
1: I want to say, don't quote me on this, but I think Jeff Dahl played in Vox Pop.
0: Like Jeff Dahl from the Jeff Dahl Band or whatever?
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: that guy. Okay, so have you ever heard, have you read that book about kind of the Jeff Dahl band tour thing? Have you ever heard of that one? No. Okay, I got to go get that. Hang on. I can't believe I've never mentioned that to you before. Okay, so this book is called The Smell of Death. And it's written by a guy named Bruce Duff. Oh.
1: We're gonna be talking about him next week. He was kind of uh around the DC three scene a little bit. I think he I think he's on the album, actually. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well he he was essentially like one of a few guys who are basically hired guns for Jeff Dahl for like a tour. Oh wow. Mostly mostly through Europe. It's just the it's basically a tour story written by Bruce Duff, playing in a band playing in Jeff Dahl's band and it is it's mayhem. Like it's just crazy.
1: Oh, I can imagine. I can't believe I haven't heard of that. I'm a huge Jeff Dahl fan, so like of his solo stuff I should say. So, like the Jeff Dahl band, basically. And uh, I'd love to check that out. I'm going to have to track it down. The Smell of Death. Yeah.
0: yeah. The Smell of Death. And I'm not even that big of a, a Jeff Dahl fan. I just read about this. It was one of those. I was on the internet rabbit hole, and I read about it, and I was like, ah, I bet you I would like that. And it said, you know, it has an introduction by Cheetah Chrome. Yep. And, and an afterward by Tony Adolescent.
1: Yeah, well, uh, Bruce Duff, I think, played in ADZ, and, uh, well, Jeff Dahl has recorded with Poison Idea or, uh, with, uh, the Dead Boys. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I read that a, a number of years ago, but I just remember it as being, like, lots of drinking, and, <laughs> I, I guess, kind of, uh, scummy venues touring around Europe and the Jeff Dahl band. It was a good story. Well, So carrying on with the rest of the tracks on the Chunks compilation, after Vox Pop, there's either an artist or a group called Ken, and the band then Slivers, which has George Hurley's brother in it, Saccharine Trust doing A Christmas Cry, a band called The Artless Entanglements, which were also on this cracks in the sidewalk compilation. I've never noticed that they're on there. I gotta check that out. Figure out who the artless entanglements are. If someone knows, let us know. Although I will note, their song on this chunks compilation is called Dildos, Bondage and Toys.
1: Okay.
0: Only to be followed and closing out the LP The Nig Heist, which I'm sure it's probably a the reason they put those two tracks together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then um the third track that's pretty obscure that's on my first bells is a song called Prelude, which is written by T-Rex, actually. You probably know that song better than I do. Yeah. It says in the insert that it's off a, a compilation called Live is Beautiful, So Why Not Eat Health Food? Right. On New Underground Records. I've actually got that, and it's it's not Live is Beautiful. It's actually Life is Beautiful, so why not eat health food? And it's got a Raymond Pettibone cover on it. And it's got a lot of the the bands from back then. Um, oh, check this out. Okay, I'm going to go through the songs on here. And uh, I'm going to answer a question you just had. So this compilation, Life is Beautiful, So Why Not Eat Health Food. It has uh, the bags on it. Anti Shattered Faith, who I've always really liked. China White. M.I.A., Ill Will, The Germs, doing Media Blitz, Minutemen do The Prelude, a band called Bee People, Mood of Defiance, Invisible Chains, who actually put out a record on New Alliance Records, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah,
1: did, yeah.
0: Marshall Mellow, uh, a band called Zurich, 1916, and then Vox Pop, yeah. with Jeff Dahl on guitar. There you go. And so on Vox Pop, the credits are Mary on vocals, looks like Don Bolas or Bolas on Don bass. Don Bolas, germs. Don Bolas. Yep. Well, okay, so here's the thing. I look I look at the germs. There's Don Bolas on drums, B-O-L-E-S, yep. and then on Vox Pop, it's Don Bolas, B-O-L-L-E-S, Good. on bass. Who knows, man? Yeah, someone better help us out on that. And then uh, closing off this compilation is a band called Power Trip, with Jeff Dahl on vocals. Jeff Dahl, yeah, <laughs> Jeff Dahl, Jeff Dahl, Dahl again, on yeah, yeah. So lots of Jeff Dahl uh, connections there. Um, yeah, he was he was kicking around. So now this this compilation, life is beautiful. So why not eat health food? Uh, there was actually a series of three compilations that uh, kind of relate to this. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, there's one called
1: Life is Terrible, so eat potato chips or something like that, isn't there?
0: <laughs> no, well, I think the second one is called Life is Boring, so why not steal this record? Okay. And that one has the germs, Minuteman, Red Cross, Shattered Faith, Anti, Mood of Defiance. Let me see here. Invisible Chains again, Slivers, Vox Pop again, Marshall Mellow. So a lot of the the same bands again. And then the third one, I think, is called Life is Ugly, So Why Not Kill Yourself? Mm. And that one has uh, Red Cross, Descendants doing uh, I Want to Be a Bear, Anti, Ill Will, Civil Dismay, China White, Mood of Defiance, Minuteman doing Shit You Hear Parties and Maternal Right. And then, this is interesting, Hundred Flowers and Urinals Back to Back. Both have uh, John Tally Jones in that band and Kevin Barrett. And, oh, and I mean, it's basically the same band. I, I've never been able to pronounce this name. I don't know if it's Kale or Kyle Johansson on guitar. Basically the same band, but it's interesting to have them side by side. Huh. The Plebs are on here, and then... Uh, Plebs had a had a EP on
1: New Alliance as well, I think.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, and then uh, Saccharine Trust. All tracks produced by Spot. So these are three LPs that are compilations that are related to SST, New Alliance, for sure. And uh, we'll have to post pictures of all those, for sure. Yeah. And very cool to have a compilation that collects the Bean Spill EP and then these three compilation tracks. But even better, um, one might say, the Coupe de Gracie is... Water Under the Bridge Records actually put out a split seven-inch by the Miniman and Saccharin Trust in a uh, couple of years ago. Have you seen that one, Brent? Uh, maybe. So this one, it actually collects the three songs off of My First Bells. That uh, other than the Bean Spill, it has Nine Thirty May the Second Clocks and Prelude on the minimen side, and then the Saccharin Trust side. I don't know this, but, I mean, we'll get to the Saccharine Trust cassette-only compilation that's kind of like my first Bell's called The Sacramental Element, I think. Yep. So I bet you, and we'll know it when we get there, that the songs that are on the B-side, the Saccharine Trust side, well, I guess they're both kind of A-sides. Disillusioned Fool, Hearts and Barbarians, and A Christmas Cry. Those are from similar, like, the compilations that the other three by the Miniman were from. It's from... Life is ugly, so why not kill yourself? Cracks yep. in the sidewalk and chunks. So I bet you, when we get to the sacramental element, we'll find uh, those tracks on that cassette as well. So it looks like Water and the Bridge kind of captured the obscurest of the obscure from the two cassette-only compilations and put it on this split seven-inch, which is very excellent. Right on. So that's kind of it for my first bells, but we should talk about the cover yeah, art. So-
1: it's a Pettibone,
0: hey? Yeah, Raymond Pettibone drawing. I'm interested to hear what you think about it. It is um, like a a woman holding up a pair of pants, obviously bell-bottoms, and with the caption, My First Bells, and then an inset kind of caption. There, It looks like a body with a toe tag on, and it says, Barefoot, is the caption. And I don't know if... I mean, the conclusion I drew from that was, I guess that maybe this woman got her first pair of bell bottoms off of this recently deceased person. I don't know.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense.
0: <laughs> maybe not.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it makes about as much sense as, you know, you can make out of any Pettibone stuff. So
0: Yeah. But that's it for my first bells. It's got, um, and, it, you know, I, I, when I was listening to it, the other thing about the Minutemen for me is that I just don't get tired of listening to their stuff. And when I was listening to this cassette, still holds up. I never get tired of listening to it. Very cool to hear the more obscure tracks amongst the very well-known stuff. It's a great tape. It's a shame that they uh, it never really got any sort of broader, I don't know, distribution or production. But I bet you, you could probably download it or something. I bet you, I don't know. I probably shouldn't encourage that. Yeah, well,
1: most of the stuff is is uh is available.
0: Yeah, you can find those cracks in the sidewalk and chunks compilations like even on CD. I think you can find them. It's not too hard. Yeah. You want to do the ballot result? I sure do. Ballot result.
1: I'm curious to see where you ended up on this, Ryan, cuz I know uh you've had to make some some tough choices in the past and <laughs> here, here's an opportunity for you to, to get one of the tracks we missed.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, I, before, before we do that, I have to make a few comments though. Please. After, after listening to this, the joy EP and the Beansville EP are both actually, I really like them both. Yeah. I liked, uh, you want to see the tracks that I wrote down that I liked? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cut. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, I seem to recall maybe Michael T. Fournier saying that was one of his favorite Minutemen songs, actually. Yeah, love that one. Uh, I Felt Like a Gringo, I've always loved. The Product is great. Uh, The Anchor. I know a lot of people say that that's one of the Minutemen's finest moments.
0: Yeah, that's a Georgie song.
1: Yeah. Uh, Off the Joy EP, Black Sheep and Marjoy. And I didn't know this, but Des got a, Des Kadena has a co-write credit on More Joy. Yeah. And uh, from the Bean Spill e, EP, Case Closed, Futurism Restated, I thought was quite good. And my pick, I don't know if I should say it yet. Say it. If if Reagan played disco.
0: Yeah, let's do that one. It, w- it would have been in my top four or five for sure. So let's do that one. It's awesome.
1: Yeah, that's a great song. I've always liked it. Ryan, what's next week?
0: Next week, we are getting into a new band altogether. We've mentioned them many times before. It's DC3. This is the dream. Can't wait. Thanks for listening, everybody.